Hi friends, welcome to the Echo Podcast. Today we're going to do a part two of last week's episode, which we just discovered was episode 16, so today is 17. We've been doing this podcast 17 weeks and time just flies. So um, today in part two, I think we'll start by talking about uh, one of the first topics we said that we would talk more about today, which is the first one being God is not a cosmic vending machine. And so last week, Pastor, and you were talking about your surgery on your hand and how, you know, as Christians, we still do experience pain. It's not like we're exempt from feeling pain on this earth. And so, um, I think a lot of people can get mad at God when they experience pain, especially intense pain, like, you Mm -hmm. know, loss of a loved one or, um, say cancer or -hmm. something. It's like, why, why would God do this to me? Um, God, I, I go to church and I do all these things and I put my change in your slot and why won't you give me candy, (laughs) you know? And so how, where do we go from there? How do we not become that ideology? Well, I I think it starts with your fundamental premise of God. And here I'm doing that 50,000 foot thing because, because religion and, and, and faith systems, you know, they are at their core systems we've created to deal with things we can't control. You know, like like you you create government and laws and law enforcement and justice systems and you create all of these things to manage what you can control. But then when things happen that nobody can control, when there's no human uh, recourse, then you have to figure out why these things happen and how you respond to them. And that's why people come up with religions. So they come up with, you know, if we're talking about some Polynesian island somewhere, then they blame the volcano. And they say, well, there's a god in the volcano that's mad. And the reason the volcano erupted and blew away our village was because the god of the volcano was mad. So we have to figure out what we did to make the volcano god mad. You know, because otherwise we don't have an explanation for it. And people just don't like it when we can't explain everything. And so religion can be a vehicle for explaining the unexplainable. And for a lot of people, that's really as far as it goes. And so when bad things happen in our lives and our religious explanation isn't satisfactory, that could be a sign of one extreme or another. It could be a sign that you put your faith in your explanation and your explanation isn't good enough. Or you put your faith in a God who can't be explained, who can't be defined, who can't be quantified. And so that means that there's a mystery aspect to this faith. And I think that what a lot of people struggle with is their need to always be able to keep things condensed. 
into manageable sizes and shapes. Israel went through this because they wanted God to dwell in a box. You know, they wanted God to dwell among them in a tabernacle. And God accommodated them. He didn't literally confine himself to that, but he he made himself accessible in a box, in a tabernacle or a tent. And then eventually God comes in the form of a baby and he confines himself to a human body. And once again, God can't be contained in a small vessel, but God can be approachable through this vessel. And so God makes himself accessible accessible through now, instead of a box of gold with wings of angels on it in a tent, he, he tabernacles in the person of Jesus. And so people can approach God personally by encountering Jesus. And then God makes himself accessible through the Holy Spirit, through the work Jesus has accomplished. And now we have the very presence of God dwelling in us. And so we have God in us. And that is, you would think, the ultimate expression of God's love for us and God's willingness to go through all of this with us. So think about it for a second. Jesus became like us, and he basically lived life like we do. That is to say that when he was a little boy, he had an earache, he had a bellyache, he had, you know, eight things that disagreed with him and then had the various outcomes we're all familiar with. And, and you know, he was thirsty, he was hungry, he was under-rested and and sleepy and tired at times. You know, he experienced the same physicality we do, even our death. And all of this he did for our sake, but also indicating that God was so willing to tabernacle with us that God even suffered through the limitations that our bodies in this sinful world are presented with every day. And so, just like the ad campaign says, he gets us. He understands what it's like to be us. And then he gives us this gift that he's made possible of God being able to dwell in us, in the person of the Holy Spirit. And so we have in us this person who is God and the Holy Spirit. And in effect, we're back to the tabernacling thing. But this time he's tabernacling in us. He's living in us. And somehow we miss the fact that when we're hurting, when we're suffering, when we're sick, when we're grieving, when we're lonely, he's in here. He's he's living through it with us. So literally, Emmanuel, God with us, is more real now than it's ever been because of what Jesus did for us. So now the Holy Spirit, alive in you, is going through what you go through. And so when you think about it then, if you're recovering from the hand surgery and your hand still hurts, the Spirit is with you while you experience the hurt. 
And if you're grieving the loss of a loved one through a sudden and unexpected death or whatever, the spirit is there. The spirit's going through it with you. And we have a tendency then to dull down or dumb down the gospel into a cause and effect sort of thing or an insurance policy, you know, if I accept that Christ is God's son and that he has somehow saved me on the cross, but I don't really understand what that means, but I know if I accept it, I go to heaven when I die, so I accept it. Well, then really all you got in the bargain is get out of hell insurance. And that's what you'll get. But if you accept that he has, through that death and resurrection through that process of redeeming us, he has become not only your savior, but your Lord, then he's basically dwelling in you. And it's the very indwelling of Christ that is the part of being a Christian that most people ignore or neglect. And they neglect it out of ignorance sometimes. And they neglect it out of fear sometimes. And a lot of times they neglect it because, you know, they, well, I think it goes back to ignorance, what I was going to say, but, but they, there's a sense that they don't, they don't want that part of it. You know, like their fear, I think is probably, it's, it's probably, okay, now that I have time to think about what I'm trying to say. I think it's two sides of a coin. You know, you've got fear on one side and you've got ignorance on the other. So the reason people ignore their indwelling Christ is because they don't know he's there because they're just ignorant and they don't realize that that is one of the outcomes, the, the primary outcome of being born again as a Christian. And then they also will... You know, when confronted with that idea, then they don't want to embrace that because it's a frightening prospect that somehow God dwells in you, which means, well, he, he, you know, if he's there when you're in pain, he's also there when you're sinning. You know, if he's there when you are uh, overjoyed, he's also there when you're outraged. You know, um, you know, he's he's there in every part of our lives because he's tabernacling or living or dwelling in us and not literally only us. He's expressing himself in every believer, which makes sense when you think about how Jesus said, wherever two or more are gathered in my name, I'm, you know, it's like, like we are all receivers, you know, we're all, we're all transmitters of the spirit of Christ. So, to your original question, then, what I'm thinking is, is that a lot of us get frustrated with God and feel that we're not getting what we're expecting when we drop our coin into the, you call, I was going to say cosmic vending machine, but I guess it was a divine vending machine. But you, it's because you're, 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 you're putting your money in the wrong thing and expecting the wrong thing. You know, like, like, you know, when I was a kid, we had cigarette machines. 
And when you would, you know, even when I was an adult, actually, not that, you know, like back in the 80s, I can remember working at the truck dealership and we had a bank of vending machines in this one room. And there's a Coke machine and there was a Pepsi machine. There was a candy machine and a chip machine and a cigarette machine. And so you took your coins out and you went to one of those machines and you pushed a button or pulled a lever and you got something. And I guess if I was to use your analogy, then it would be as though you were standing in front of the cigarette machine expecting it to give you potato chips. But instead, it gave you cigarettes, you know. And if you stand in front of the Pepsi machine, but you really wanted a Coke, then you're pushing the button on the wrong machine, you know. And I think that's what I'm getting at, is that, that what I believe is wrong with so many of Christian people's experience with God is that they've got the expectations all out of whack. They keep thinking that they're going to get something that they can't get there. You know, you, <laughs> I think a farmer might say to you, you know, that's kind of like going into the barn and there's a bull in the milking slot and you think you're going to get milk. <laughs> you know, you're going to get kicked in the head what you're going to get or something, and so, you know, it's like you, you need to know what you want and who you want it from and whether that's something you should even expect in the first place. And I think a lot of Christians struggle with the idea because they don't know how to get comfort from that. You know, um, if you get a diagnosis or you go through the loss of someone or whatever, you will experience pain and you can say to yourself maybe just because of intellectual assent right you could say I know that God dwells in me that he has come into my heart and that Christ is in me and that it's expressed through his spirit and all I can say is I'm still hurting I, I it doesn't make me feel any better and I can agree to that. I can acknowledge that because I've felt that way too. I have felt that way myself. And what I found is that, you know, God's not offering you deliverance from the pain, but he is offering you a shared experience. You know, he's saying, you don't know. And I think this is I, I think this is one of the strange things about living in the Christian era, which is loosely defined as the time between the ascension of Christ and his return. The Christian era, you know, or the church age sometimes it's called. And I think one of the one of the good things and the bad things about being this deep into the Christian era is this, that we're so accustomed to the presence of Christ and the presence of the Holy Spirit that we don't, we, we can take it for granted. Um, I used to speculate about this back in the 90s when I was joining millions of Americans reading the Left Behind book series and stuff. Um, I would say to myself, you know, if there's really a rapture at the beginning of seven years of tribulation, it's not hard to imagine why the world would turn so ugly because once you take all the Christians out, well, Jesus said, wherever two or more of you are gathered in my name, I'm there. Well, if there aren't any of us here, 
He's not here. Right. You know, now, obviously, the book of Revelation tells us that there is a, uh, a group of people who become believers during the tribulation. And so, in a sense, he's not gone forever. <laughs> you know, he comes back because people pray for and seek him. And so he comes. And, and so there is, you know, and then there's the whole story of the conversion of the Jews during the tribulation and, and all of this. So, so, in a sense, he's not gone forever, but he's gone for a little while. <laughs> And that's all it takes for hell to go crazy and, and rampage across the world, you know, and a series of other events. But I don't want to go into that because that's not what our podcast is about today, you know. But my point is, is that when I, when I got my mind around that concept of, well, now, if there was a rapture and all the Christians were removed, the world would be like it has never been since the Christian age began. That makes sense. When, you know, and we talked about this a little bit in the past, but when you really look at the big picture of the Bible and you read through Genesis and you go, you know, you work away, the thing that God does through the Jews, through the nation of Israel, in human history is truly unique. In, in, and to put it even further than that, to, in all of world history, like, like you know, if, if it turns out that we have a concept, as I do, but other people might not, but, but if you have a concept for the sort of uh, uh, pre-Eden kind of fallen world that Eden is put in the middle of, so that God creates this place of order in the middle of the chaos... And then he creates these unique people in his own image. And, and so if you think along those lines, then looking at the history of all created things, you begin to realize that this experiment of God's with this unique breed of people, the descendants of Adam, and then his organizing them into a nation called Israel or a people group called Israel, and then his saving act through Jesus Christ creates this body of Christ that transcends Israel. You know, when you look at that big picture, because now instead of 50,000 feet, I'm at like 80,000 miles, right? And I'm saying basically, you look at this and you realize that what God has done is truly unique. There's never been anything like the people of Adam, the Israel uh, the nation of Israel, the people of Israel, nothing like the body of Christ, which is what we would call us Christians in the church age. So if there's never been anything quite like that, and outside of it, there still isn't anything like that, then the world where people are indwelt by the Spirit of God is unique. And it's limited. It's exclusive. It is literally an exclusive club. <laughs> and, and, and that means that as much as a lot of, pardon the use of the term, but liberal-minded people would say, well, that's not right. You know, God loves everybody. And, but he really, he really doesn't. <laughs> you know, he really doesn't. He, he, 
He loves everybody he created and he loves everything he created. And he seeks to redeem everything he creates. But there are things that have rejected him. There are people or or beings who have rejected him. And, and it's not that he doesn't love them, but he can do nothing for them. There is an exclusivity to the idea of being saved by God. So he has this unique relationship with Israel that seems to not be over until the very end of everything. And then he has this relationship with the born-again believers we call the body of Christ. And then he has this relationship with everybody and everything else. And so it's pretty exclusive club we're in. And the really neat thing is, it's really easy to get in the club, in a sense, because it's a confession, it's a, it's a, 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 a it's repentance, you know, it's an acknowledgement that you can't be a part of the body of Christ unless you desire to be so much that you're willing to repent and confess that you have rejected God and that you've sinned against God by your rejection and God's ways are foreign to you. So that's why you don't do the right things because you don't even know what they are until you know him. And, you know, so, so there's this process you go through that's not hard, but it's not easy either. It requires a great deal of humility on your part. And then you are part of this very, very exclusive club or this family, this family of God that you were made a part of because God adopted you as a child of his own. And that means like his son. So why then when you're experiencing pain, when you're suffering, when you're grieving, why doesn't it make you feel better? Well, I think if you are a born-again believer, part of God's family, then the only answer I can give is it's because, well, you're not sanctified enough, I guess. And by the way, that would be me too. I, I mean, like, like there are plenty of times in my life where I thought, well, I guess I'm not sanctified enough to be able to somehow move past the earthiness of this experience of pain that I'm having. But we have been given everything we need to do that. It's just a process. And as a person of the Wesleyan tradition, I can tell you that even Wesley said that most of us would probably finish the process in heaven or after resurrection or whichever comes first, you know, because, because pure sanctification or Perfect holiness is not something that most of us will be ever, ever able to achieve on earth and, and, you know, within the time we have on earth. So I guess what that means is, is when you're suffering, you have to say, well, at least I know you're suffering with me. Yeah. When you've been talking this time, I've been thinking about a dog honestly, like the unconditional love of a dog. And I'm imagining 
just this beautiful, sweet little creature. And I am a cat person, but I can recognize this about dogs, this unconditional love of like this dog just bounding up to you and saying, I love you. I love you so much. And just being so happy to see you. Imagine like when you come home from work or something Mm -hmm. and your dog is just so excited to see you. Um, I'm imagining God kind of being that way, not to reduce him to a dog, but, um, you know, the moment that you just turn to him and say, okay, I accept your love. I love you. And then it's a matter of entering into this relationship of, okay, well, how do we take care of each other? Hmm. Right? Like, what do I need to do to maintain my relationship with my dog? I need to feed it. I need to take it outside. I need to do all these things. I need to go to church. I need to say my prayers. I need to have a relationship with God. I need to talk to him. Hmm. Um, and I was just picturing that as you were talking. Um, well, I think, I think perhaps one of the reasons God has given us dogs, maybe cats and a few other, I mean, I, well, I don't mean to digress, but I don't think there are very many pets that are truly bred to be domestic. I mean, you know, people can have pets of all different kinds that aren't really bred for that. And they're not by nature domestic, but dogs and cats truly are domestic. (laughs) Like Mm -hmm. they wouldn't survive without us because they have been so bred as unique companions And so you have to ask yourself if that's part of God's divine purpose. And I suspect it is, you know, I, I've heard this prayer for years that sometimes is attributed to cowboys and their horses. And sometimes it's attributed to dog owners. And it goes like this, dear Lord, please make me the kind of person my dog thinks I am. And it's true. You know, like, I'm going to go home in a little while, and my dog, Bella, is going to be so glad to see me, and I will joke to her and no one else in the room. It doesn't really matter. I'll just joke with her and say, you know, I am just so daggone awesome, you know, because there's no other explanation for why this dog is so glad to see me other than, as far as she's concerned, I am awesome. And, you know, that's good. Thank you, God, for giving me someone in my life, a companion that really does always think the best of me, that always believes in my awesomeness, you know. And and uh, the mere fact that I'm in the room is more than enough to make her so joyful she can hardly contain herself. You know, how awesome is that? What a gift, you know. So, yeah, thank you, God, for dogs and cats. And it uh, still happens I have both. And I have a dog and a cat who compete to get the awesomeness first every day. Mm-hmm. I go through this. One on my left, one on my right. One weighs 12 pounds, one weighs 87 pounds. And they're both trying to get me to pet them and love on them and receive their love back because they can't get enough of my awesomeness, you know. And then the third cat sits across the room and gazes upon my awesomeness from a distance but doesn't really want to get caught up in that fray yeah and then when everybody's done and they go away she casually comes over and absorbs some awesomeness too and it's just like thank you lord what is what is the deal here you know i mean but so yeah thanks for bringing that up because i just like talking about it but but you know 
I, I was thinking a little bit as you were saying that I was thinking, well, you know, it's kind of like when you're sick or in pain. It's amazing how your pets have an uncanny ability to know that. And they really can't do anything to make you feel better, but they do comfort you. They'll just cuddle up with you. And it's like they're saying, well, I, I can't, you know, for whatever reason, I can't make you feel better, but I can go through this with you. And they just do, you know. And again, we are both saying it clearly that we would not put God on the same level with a dog or a cat. And yet there are things about God that we can better understand through our pets than we can through other means. And one of the things that I learned, for example, about praise is when we think about praise, when we're praising God, a lot of times it takes the form of thank yous and prayers. And we think we're praising, but what we're saying is more of a here's what I need from you, here's what I want from you, or thank you for giving me what I needed or what I wanted or whatever. But praise is what you do when your dog is telling you how awesome you are and you're telling them back. You know, praise is when you just say, such a good dog. You're the best dog. You just make me feel good every time you're around. You're the best dog. You're such a pretty dog. You know, and all those things you say, that, again, is not how we should talk to God. But if you want to comprehend what praising God really looks like, it looks like that. We say, God, you're amazing. God, you're awesome. God, you are so loving. You are the great God of all creation. There are none like you. You are my God and my King. You are the creator of everything. And you're just naming all the ways that God is awesome. That's praise. And people don't do that enough. And I would even say, as a way of approaching the question that you opened with, that one way that you could test the indwelling nature of Christ during your time of pain is to praise. The Bible, excuse me, the Bible says that God inhabits praise. And I have put this to the test, and I have experienced this personally, is when you're going through a really difficult thing, praise the Lord. But we just talked about what praise looks like. It's not, Lord, I'm suffering, but I know you can fix it. It's a little bit slippery slope there because, you know, you're sort of asking. But when you give to the Lord unconditionally affection, devotion, faith, when you give to the Lord without any expectation in return, that's praise. And he inhabits that praise. And I believe that that praise has a power that is as potent as any bug repellent you could put on, as potent as any mechanism you can think of to drive away evil. You know, and when you start praising the Lord, the devil turns tail and runs. He cannot stand the holy ground that you create when you start to praise the Lord. So when you're suffering, and even though you don't feel like it because you're tired and you're sick, you're in pain or you're grieving and you're, sin, you're in the depths of your sorrow, if in the midst of that you can say, nevertheless, my God 
is an awesome God. Nevertheless, my God has saved me and all creation because of his great love. Nevertheless, Lord, I will love you and serve you and praise you with every breath of my being. I will never, ever betray you, Lord, because you are always the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the God of all creation. Your enemies are my enemies, you know, and you just you just start knocking out all these phrases and, you know, you feel yourself like a locomotive sort of picking up momentum, you know, and I think that's really where you begin to overcome. It's not through your own strength. It's because you devote what strength you have to praising the Lord. And that is activating that Holy Spirit within you that is Christ indwelling you. Love it. And I love hearing, I love listening to people pray because you can hear how close their heart and mind is to the heart and mind of God. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when you hear someone just, you know, spouting off lists of thank you for this, thank you for that, thank you for this, it's like, okay, that's fine and good. Um, but let's praise the Lord for the things not of this world, mm-hmm. for all that he is and all that he has done. Um, and I think that part of that too most of that comes from just knowing who he is, knowing him intimately through reading his word, through reading the Bible. Mm-hmm. It's so important to know scripture. Like all of those phrases that you just listed off, I know those are in the Bible because I've read it, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so for someone who's not read the Bible to hear you say, you are King of Kings and Lord of Lords and you are all of this, they're probably like, what? what? Where is he getting all of this from? But it's so important to read the Bible and to know God's heart and mind through it. Um, there was another thing that I wanted to talk about. Um, you mentioned earlier expectations, like as Christians, like what are our expectations of God, right? And we need to check those. Mm-hmm. And I think we need to check those and compare them to what the Bible actually says about God. Who is God? Who is Jesus? You know, there are things that a lot of people in this world think that God said that he never did say. Um, I had someone, a a distant family member over the weekend, because it was Christmas. um, They said, well, you know, the Lord helps those who help themselves. (laughs) And I just, I didn't say anything. But in my heart, I knew he didn't say that, though. But that's one of those things that a lot of people think. Mm -hmm. And it's so important for the 18th time to know what God actually said so that you can check your own expectations. And, you know, even if there's people listening who don't consider themselves as Christian yet, that's just like solid life advice too. Sure. To check your expectations of yourself and of others. And um, I think that can be the cause of a lot of disappointment, right? Expectations lead to disappointment. You know, I'm really glad that you said that because the, what what was forming in, in my mind was this, that, that if you're not a Christian and you're listening to this, well, thank you. I mean, we really are honored. But 
but that's such a solid piece of advice. And, and in a way, it was reminds me of something we were talking about earlier today. But, you know, there's an awful lot of times when people become disappointed because their expectations aren't met. But their disappointment doesn't validate their expectations. And in the same way, if we're receiving their disappointment, that doesn't justify their actions or their response to their disappointment. In other words, if you go to a restaurant and you're disappointed with the experience uh, and you start chewing out the most available person, like, you, you know, you, you chew out the waiter because the food wasn't cooked properly. Well, that's because they're there, you know, but they're not the one who cooked the food. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. and and so if you're going to have realistic ex- expectations, then you're going to say when my expectations aren't met, I'm disappointed. And disappointment is a real uh, uh, emotional experience. It's something you experience because you're let down, you know, because you had these hopes and dreams about this experience and now that it's not going to go the way you hoped it would or the way you imagined it happening, you're disappointed and your disappointment can turn into full-blown rage, you know. But does that mean that your rage is justified? Or if you're on the receiving end of that rage, does that mean that you uh, are somehow supposed to take that and accept that? You know, and okay, it really you deserve it. Yeah. It's yeah. like it's like, you know, I'm sorry you're disappointed. And as much as it depends on me, I'm sorry that I failed you in some way. But I think your response to your disappointment is not balanced, you know. And and I guess where I'm going with that is this a lot of times we do that to God too, right? You know, we we're unhappy that God didn't come through for us when we thought God should have come through for us. But it has to do with what our expectations are versus our just sense of disappointment. So in a really healthy person, you might say, well, Lord, I was really hoping you would deliver me from this. I, I went, you know, the, the, I, went to the, I went to the doctor's office and they said, there's something funny on your scan that we need to take a look at. And we'll see you next week and talk about what it is. And in the week, you pray, you pray, you pray, you pray. And, and then, you know, you go the week later and they say, well, it, it's not good news. What we see on the scan looks like it could be something, you know, that, that's going to shorten your life or it's going to require a lot of difficulty for you to overcome it. And we're hopeful. Well, then you go home and the first thing you experience is this disappointment. And you might be tempted to be outraged with God for not answering your prayer. And God is patiently letting you be disappointed. You know, he's just patiently letting you be disappointed. He's not taking it personally. You know, he's not taking it personally that you're upset that you just got bad news. And he doesn't go away, you know, he doesn't say, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, I'm not going to listen to this. I'm, you know, that, that's just not how God does things. And that's because God's better at all of it than we are, you know, but the, but the point is, 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 you know, we all 
have disappointments in life and we have different ways of dealing with our disappointments. And I guess the really healthy, emotionally healthy person is going to say, I'm just really disappointed. You know, I just, I'm just really let down. I, I had hopes, I had dreams, I had expectations. I was looking forward to telling everybody how amazing God is because he delivered me. You know, I had all these dreams and hopes tied to this prayer and God didn't answer the prayer the way that I hoped and dreamed. And now I'm disappointed. And then you say, so God, what do you want me to do? You know, what, what am I supposed to do with this now? Because at least in this case, you're disappointed with somebody who isn't doing anything wrong. <laughs> you know, when we get disappointed with other people, sometimes they make it worse because they're imperfect too. But with God, you just, you kind of have to say, well, God, okay. You know, I know how I wanted this to go, but obviously you've got a different plan in mind. What do I do with this? And, you know, I've had the privilege and heart-wrenching experience of talking with people within hours of their passing from this world because they prayed and prayed that they would be delivered, and they weren't. And many times they say, well, it's God's will, but I know where I'll be. And you have to realize that, well... From a secular human standpoint, you know, it's that stages of grief thing, which is pretty legit, you know, just because the secular world came up with a way to explain it doesn't make it wrong. Right. Because that's what we do, right? You know, we get bad news, we grieve because, you know, something, you know, grief is what happens when something changes permanently and you know you're never going to get what you've always expected out of that situation and so you grieve. You grieve because you lost a job or you grieve because you lost a loved one. It's really the same process in your mind and your heart. And you're, you're going through this process where you're in denial, where you're angry, where you're bargaining with God, you know, all those things that, that are associated with that. But the acceptance is when you make your peace, you know, and acceptance is something you have to fight for, you know, and, and you fight for it by grabbing on to whole truths, you know, and mm -hmm. the truth is, is God is always God and God never changes and God is always for you and he's working this out for you in an eternal spectrum where there's a lot more than time and space. So, yeah. Mm. I'm thinking about what a perfect time of year it is for us to be talking about expectations because along with Christmas come a lot of expectations. Yeah. My husband, Anthony, and I have been talking about expectations a lot around what does Christmas mean? What do we expect in Christmas? And we've been talking about it at the church too. When people come for Christmas service, they expect some things. Mm -hmm. They expect to sing Christmas songs. They expect to sing Silent Night at our candlelight service. Mm -hmm. You know, they maybe even expect to hear some jingle bells or see red and green and all of these things. And so it's like, what, what do you, listener, expect from the Christmas season? And is that a source of disappointment for you? Is that why a lot of people feel 
stressed and negative emotions around Christmas time? Is it because you expect that um, you'll have a bunch of gifts to open up? Is it that you expect that your child is going to be overjoyed at the gift that you bought them and then they're not and then you're disappointed? Is it that you expected to have all of your loved ones present and maybe one of them died around the holidays and it's a source of grief for you? And so what do we expect around Christmas time, right? Mm -hmm. This year felt so bizarre to me. It felt like Christmas just... It just wasn't Christmas because it was warm outside. Yeah. There was no even glimmer or chance of snow at all. It was rainy and like 60 something. And that that is an expectation, yeah. right, of Christmas, of having that white Christmas and and all of that. So I guess that's just a point of reflection of like, what do you expect from Christmas? And is that why we are so stressed and so well, hellbent on trying to make Christmas be this thing that we expect it to be. How do we navigate those expectations as Christians? And mm. how do we not do Christmas like the world wants us to do Christmas? Well, that's a very good question. I think that you manage your expectations and then you learn to manage your disappointment. And I couldn't help thinking that a lot of what we have, a lot of what we do at Christmas time, worse than other times of the year, is is a form of self medication. I mean, like, like we want to create this experience that makes us feel good, and you know, most bad habits or addictions or anything like that stem from the fact that it makes us feel good that you know or as as my doctor likes to say it's an endorphin thing you know it, it makes you feel good it, it medicates you even in a physical sense you know uh i've been eating way too many christmas cookies and things like that and i'm pretty sure i put on an extra five pounds and i was already heavier than i ever wanted to be and so I've got a hard road ahead of me if I want to try to get my weight back down. And part of what you have to deal with mentally and emotionally when you're trying to curb these things and get them under control is the withdrawal, you know, which is a sort of physical expression of disappointment. Your body's mad at you because you are letting it down. You're, it's, your body's disappointed because you're not feeding it the sugar that it wants thrived on or whatever. So, so, you know, managing your expectations, managing your disappointment, um, realizing that much of what you're trying to get your circumstances to do for you is, is an unmet need that you have that, you know, or, or it's that fix that you need, you know, like, like I, I'm kind of mixing a little bit of psychology in this and, but, you know, to, to, to recognize that, you know, isn't it funny? I mean, it, it, you're a lot younger than me, but you know, when I was a kid, when I was really young, people still waited until the night before Christmas to put up their Christmas tree. You know, I mean, the Christmas tree went up the night before Christmas and then it stayed up for about a week. 
till you know twelfth night or or January sixth or fifth technically, but you you know the the whole culture has shifted, and in part it's well it's a big part of it is because of marketing and 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 commercialism, but you know now we we're putting up our Christmas stuff you know in October. And the whole month of November is is the lead up to Christmas, and then and then the whole month of December is Christmas, and then it all sort of climaxes with Christmas Day, and then we're done with it, you know, and and then people can't understand why the darkest month of the year and the coldest month of the year here in the Northern Hemisphere, they're depressed, you know, well because you ramped up this big high for months and then just ended it, mm. you know, and it, and it plays heck with your emotions. But in a sense, instead of keeping a steady sort of incoming flow of kind of, I don't know, I'm, I'm picturing at this point in my mind, I'm picturing, you know, like an IV, you know, it, Instead of dumping the whole, you know, like if you cut the end of an IV bag off and dump it over someone's head, it won't do them much good at all. <laughs> if, on the other hand, you carefully insert it into a, the proper location on their vein and then you turn it on and it drips slowly, then it provides you with vital things on a very steady basis for quite some time. You know, that that's how it's supposed to work, you know. But what do we do with most of the things in our lives that we consider sort of self-medication? We cut the bag open and pour it over our head, you know, because somehow we think it's better to take it that way than the way that it's best distributed, which is a drop at a time. And so figuring out how to take your medicine, so to speak, your spiritual medicine, one drop at a time steadily is probably the the healthier thing i would think that maybe you know spending a few minutes or a few seconds with the lord every hour you know and it could mean as little as as you know you stop like when when your smartwatch tells you it's time to stand you know you stand at 10 till the hour that's what mine says it and you stand at 10 till the hour and you say praise the lord praise the lord I mean, I don't know. I mean, I'm not trying to make that like if anybody takes that and runs with it, great. But but it, it's the concept that I want to express, you know, because, boy, if there's one thing that I'm really having to wrap my mind around at this point in my life, it's the importance of taking baby steps because I've just, you know, I've tried and failed so many times at certain things throughout my life and then gotten disappointed and discouraged and depressed and all of that. And, and I probably even blamed God or a lot of other things. You know, I, I, well, in my life, I spent a lot of time blaming myself. You know, I beat myself up for the disappointment. And so maybe the first thing everybody has to do is be willing to give yourself a break. Say, I'm disappointed. And... I'm not mad at me. I'm just disappointed. You know, I mean, maybe that's where you start. You just say, I'm disappointed. I'm just going to sit here and meditate on my disappointment. And when I'm pretty sure I understand why I'm disappointed, then I'll see where I go from there.
Yeah. You know what I'm wondering about? Please take a guess. What, do we, what, what are you wondering about? I don't think you'll guess. I'm sorry. It's okay. I wonder what a spiritual smartwatch would look like. <laughs> yeah, Wouldn't okay. that be cool? Yeah, instead that's a neat of, idea. Instead of like a physical where it's measuring your steps and your sleep and your hydration and all of those things, what if we could wear a spiritual smartwatch? Hmm. And it would tell us the state of our spiritual health. You know, these fancy things nowadays, they say, oh, based on how much sleep you've gotten and based on your hydration and based on your activity levels, we'd say you're X percentage towards your recovery, whatever. <laughs> like, I wonder what that would look like. It's an interesting thought. If it knew all of the things that we were doing to maintain our spiritual health every week. Well, we'd all be better off, I'm sure. I'm really sure of that. Um, yeah, I don't know why it's so hard for us to to do the things that we need to do the most. I I've thought about that a lot, you know, because because I've um, you know I I'm reluctant to say this for you know, all the tens of listeners to hear, but I, you know, I've always struggled since I was a kid with overeating, you know, if it tastes good, it feels good. And if it feels good, then more is better. Mm. And that's been a real struggle. And, and most of my life I've been able to manage the weight gain that comes with that by, you know, taking breaks and losing weight. But I've been, you know, kind of your chronic dieter, if I'm not losing weight, I'm gaining weight. There's really no balance. And I'm at this place in my life where I've gained weight again. And of course, as all those roller coaster dieters know, each time you gain weight, you gain more than you did the last time. And so, you know, perpetually, you're putting the weight back on with a little extra to boot and uh, or even in the boot. <laughs> Pardon the joke. <laughs> and uh, the, you know... The reality is, is that we we can be so smart and so sure about what we should do and what we shouldn't do, and yet still do the things we shouldn't do. You know, I mean, the Apostle Paul said it. You know, he said, I, I, I don't know why, but I keep doing what I shouldn't. <laughs> you know, Lord, please help my unbelief. You know, Lord, my flesh is... My spirit is willing, but my flesh is weak. You know, it's, it's like we know what we should do. We know what would be best for us, but we don't do it. And why? You know, what is this force that just leads us mindlessly into doing the things we don't want to do and we know we shouldn't do? And I don't have an answer for that because it gets me too. For once, I might. Oh, good. Oh, no. I'm open. Let's hear it. I'm stepping out courageously. But I think it goes back to that uh, that lady that I was listening to this morning that you walked in on my continuing oh, yeah, yeah, education yeah. course. And this lady said, um, everybody's motivated. Everybody's motivated by something. It's just a matter of 
what motivates you most. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, yes, we all know that we should be more active. We all know that we should eat more fruits and vegetables and take our daily vitamins and drink enough water. Like I can pretty safely assume that most people know that, Mm -hmm. but I think it's a matter of what motivates you most. And, and taste buds can be extremely motivating. Sure. That can overweigh anything, right? Sure. And I've spent a very large majority of my life also concerned about body weight and body image and and the health and wellness industry. I mean, I was a health educator for a while. Like mm. so I've coached people through weight loss and and all of these things and something that I've found through my own personal journey is that taste buds change pretty quick. Like I went on a sugar detox once where Mm. I said, I'm not going to eat. And this is all related spiritually. So we'll just go down this rabbit hole. But, um, I went on a sugar detox and I said, I'm going to do it for a week. I'm not going to eat any added sugar for a whole week. And this was probably five or six years ago. And I made it six and a half days and I was so horribly sick I had to go home from work one day because my intestines could not handle it. My body started shutting down. Like, mm. and I'm not one that eats a lot of sugar. I don't drink sodas regularly. I don't eat a lot of candy bars. And yet, just taking away that sugar that's in so many things we don't even think about mm-hmm. lunch meat. I mean, all of these things have ketchup, you know, of course, we know that's very sweet, but um, my body just shut down. I got so sick. And, but something that I found was that even by day four or five, a red bell pepper tasted so much sweeter than it did when I was eating sugar regularly. Mm. And so what if going on a quote diet wasn't necessarily about eating less of what you loved? What, what if it was about just changing what you love? Mm. And craving those things more. Like you can pretty much eat however many vegetables you want. Like there's not totally a cap on that. Fruit is slightly different because of all the sugar in it. But what if you changed your taste buds slowly and surely over time to crave Brussels sprouts Hmm. or to crave kale chips or to crave all of these things that are actually very nutritious for you? What if through small doses of church, you train yourself to crave more church Hmm. or Holy Spirit or whatever you want to put in there? That's great, Adrian. That really is. You know, I spend so much time thinking about how to reach people and invite them to be a part of this. And, you know, again, I think it has to do with expectations. I, I try to understand what their expectations might be. And I think I have a pretty good grasp of, well, their negative expectations. Because I've made no secret of it. I've talked about it on Sunday mornings to our congregation. I've told them, you know, I hate to say it, but I think we've reached a point where when a young person thinks even for a second about whether they might come here to see what we're all about. They just expect a negative experience. 
And I can't blame them because in most cases they will have a negative experience based on what they consider a negative experience, not what I think a negative experience is or what you think one is. They expect it to be negative because of certain things they anticipate. You know, I can't fault them for that, but I'm not sure how to overcome it either. I'm not exactly sure how you tell them, well, you know, how will you know whether you're going to experience that or not if you just don't try? Well, then it comes back to what motivates you, right? Well, why do I go in the first place? What's in it for me? Why would I want to be a part of that? Why, why would I go? And so I, I spent a lot of time thinking about these things, you know, and I don't know, maybe, maybe what we're doing with this podcast is a form of small dose. I say that, and yet I'm also trying to learn from the secular world about podcasts and you know, what I'm finding is, is that when I put a short on YouTube, that's a clip from my sermon, if it's 30 seconds or less, I get a lot of views. If it's a minute or less, I get fewer views. And if it's over a minute, I get even fewer views. And I wonder if our podcast, by virtue of being an hour to an hour and a half, you know, is is something that people don't necessarily go for. And yet I listen to podcasts all the time that run 45 minutes, an hour, hour and a half, because I like what I'm hearing and I'm interested in what I'm hearing. So it's all, you know, and I'm probably straying off topic at this point because, you know, we're talking about why people suffer and why they, you know, how they should experience that suffering if they're Christians and everything. And, and, you know, but, but to try to put it in perspective is like, like if, if I'm suffering right now because I've let my health deteriorate, then what right have I to blame God for that? You know, I've let my health deteriorate. And I'm suffering the consequences and God doesn't owe me anything. I told you a couple of weeks ago about the guy that, you know, has lived a life with very poor health for a long, long time. And now he's confined and feeling as though God owes him something. And it's like, well, I don't know. If I were God, I would say, well, you know, when were you asking me to help you regain your health? You know, where were you uh, thinking that I fit into that doctor's appointment where the doctor said, hey, you know, I think you're going to try to lose some weight here if you want to get this under control. And you have to change your diet a little if you want to get this under control. I mean, God's saying, wasn't I there? You know, so so, you know. Now, bringing it back around to what I was just saying about people, you know, I want people to be part of this church, and I acknowledge the fact that the church, there's too many different ways to use that term at this point. There's capital C church, which is that body of Christ thing we were talking about. Then there's church with a small c that means a lot of different things. It, it can mean worship services. It can mean a building. It can mean a group of people that go to that building. But, but at the end of the day, these people called Christians, have my, they, they have shot themselves in their own foot. They've, they've been the reason why they can't grow very well anymore. And then in the same way, the ones that are growing more often than not are compromising in ways that I'm not comfortable with. And I don't assume that. I listen to what they say. So so it's all very complicated. You know, um, I, what's really interesting is, is that I just finished a book about Martin Luther 
early last month or this month, I'm, I'm talking like this is going to air before uh, the end, after the end of the year, but we'll have it up before that. Early in December, I read a book about Martin Luther, and then I read a book by the same author about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And, you know, both guys are dealing with the fact that the church always devolves into a bunch of people with a religious system that compromises with the world. In Bonhoeffer's case, he compromised, he saw the church compromising with the Nazis, you know, and we all know what that caused. So, so it's like, you know, I, I get it. The funny thing is, is the church is suffering today because for years it compromised with the world and the world outpaced it. <laughs> and so why do young people not want to go to church? Well, because there's nothing that they can't get anywhere else as far as they're concerned. Mm. And it makes more sense to get it somewhere where people are glad to see you instead instead of being ready to condemn you right away because of how you dress or your your political views or whatever. It's like, like I get it, you know. The the thing that is life sustaining and spirit sustaining, the thing that transcends time, that has always kept the body of Christ at the center of the things God considers vital in the world has been devotion to Jesus Christ and allowing his indwelling nature to be expressed through you. And it turns out that when he was at his best, that's what Martin Luther was doing. And it turns out that that's what Dietrich Bonhoeffer was doing. And people knew them for their boldness, their courage, their willingness to put themselves at risk for a greater good. You know, they were, but they, but they were also known for their generosity and their kindness. Now, Luther went a little bit nuts in his old age and literally, you know, there was the devil to pay. But, but it, until he reached that point where he was acting a little crazy, the man was actually, you know, remarkable for for unique reasons. And so they became major players in God's plan. So I guess what I'm trying to say is, is if you want to, you know, if you want to join a body of people with that goal, we're here, you know, um, not everybody here is committed to that, but I am, and I happen to be the leader. So, you know, there's that Adrian is, and she happens to be a key leader in this congregation. And, you know, so it would be better if you were here, because if you're really looking for a life changing experience with God and you're looking to hang out with people who are seeking that, it's here. But you're not going to know that until you talk to us, because if you just look at our building when you're driving by, you're not going to know. And I don't know how we reach you to tell you that something here is what you're looking for. And it isn't the building or, you know, you may or may not like the music we sing on Sunday morning. You may or may not like the decor, you know, but but it's the relationships. You know, you gave a beautiful testimony a few weeks ago in a meeting we had at the church. And, you, you know, you described how your relationship with me and then eventually with other church people was the thing that made all the difference. Mm-hmm. And that's what I wish I could communicate to more people in the community is if you're looking for relationships, 
for the sake of and with people who are doing life together in search of Christ, in search of the real God, the real Jesus Christ. If you're looking for the real thing, so are we. And we know a lot more about it than you might realize. But you could also walk in here on just the right day and meet the crummiest, rottenest person in the whole building. There's always that chance. Right. (laughs) So part of what we have to do when we're inviting people to be a part of this is, is to somehow build up their expectations and then build up their sense of adventure and their sense of trust and their sense of willingness to, to, you know, explore, you know, I don't know. I, we got to find a way we got to, I got, there's got to be a way to get people to, to join us in this adventure. Yeah. Yeah. The bottom line is Shiloh is special because God is special and we seek him together frequently all the time. We do life together. We love each other. Um, I told Anthony just this past weekend, man, what would we do without our Shiloh family? Mm. There are people at Shiloh that care about me so much. And, and I don't always find that in my biological family. Sure. Ouch. But it's true. Well. And, but Shiloh is special. And I just wish that I could shout that from the rooftops. But I guess if you're listening, you know. Yeah. Um, if you know, you know, right? Yeah. I, and, and, you know, it's, it's not like, it's not Shiloh. It, I mean, you didn't say anything wrong, but, but it's like for, for the sake of somebody who's listening, you know, it's like, I get it. There's a church on every corner. I get it. Some of the churches are these big boxes and some of them are these little clapboard buildings and some of them are tall towers and bells and smells. And I mean, I get it. There's a church on every corner. What Adrian's describing is not the building. It's the people in the building and it's the people in the building who really hunger for the Lord. You know, they are people who really desire a relationship with God and they know that they have a better chance together than apart and we just happen to have this building as a place to meet and and a place to to receive leadership and teaching because that's kind of my job and it's not my job exclusively but at least I can get the ball rolling you know and and uh yeah I mean that that's what we've got to help people understand and that's why you got to have a spirit of adventure because you might find that in one of those other buildings with the crosses and the steeples and or not you know you you might find that in other places and god god bless you if you do but don't be satisfied with religious activity don't be satisfied with entertainment don't be satisfied with a religion that gives you an explanation for things until it doesn't Mm -hmm. which is where we started (laughs) you know be satisfied when you find a body of people who trust the lord not to solve all of their problems or prevent them from suffering, but to be in it with them all the way through to new life for all eternity. 
you know, and then asks us to be the comfort and the strength for each other. You know, because that we can do. And that's what we're trying to do. Amen to that. I think we better wrap up for today. All right, then. Okay. Thanks for listening, everybody. We love you. Hope to meet you soon. Bye. Bye.